Two weeks from today, the Christian church will be celebrating that special day we call Easter, but it focuses upon the resurrection of our Lord Jesus from the dead. Following His death on the cross and His burial in the tomb, He did come forth again on the third day, on the first day of the week, alive. But have you ever asked yourself, and I know some of you have because some of you have asked me, why did God have to do it that way? I mean, why did He have to send His Son? Why did Jesus have to come from glory and dwell among men, live in poverty, be subject to the ill treatment that He received by the scribes and the Pharisees all throughout His ministry, and then especially the beating, the mocking, spitting in His face, the humiliation, stripped naked and hung on a cross to die. Why did Jesus have to go through that? Couldn't God have simply declared those He intended to save as saved? Okay? I'm saying it. You're saved. And then overlooked the sin of people, whatever sin that they may have committed. You know, there are some who say that there is no hell. And that everyone who dies, when they die, goes to heaven. They're universalists. They say that there is no hell, that everyone goes to heaven when they die. Why can't it just be that way? Why can't God just ignore sin and everybody goes to heaven when they die? Why did there have to be this incarnation of Christ Why did He have to come as a man and then be subject to this humiliation, be beaten cruelly, and then crucified on the cross? Why did that have to happen? Well, this year, as we approach the day of resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're looking at a series that I've called, Why Would God Do This? And we come this morning to one of those events involved in the whole redemption of mankind. Why would God do this? Send His Son. Why the incarnation? We're sort of trying to answer that question from the psalmist in Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you should think of him? Why do anything for wicked, lost sinners? rebellious, sinful people who are often indifferent to God and indifferent to His Son. So we began last week by answering the question, why redemption? Why redemption at all? Not not why was it necessary. We're actually going to deal with that a little today. But why redeem a people at all? Why do anything for the human race? Why save anyone? And we saw the answer primarily from Psalm 103 as the psalmist says that He pardons our iniquities and He redeems us from the pit. As far as the east is from the west, so far God has removed our transgressions from us. But why? Out of His loving kindness. Out of His loving kindness. Remember I said that there are just 
two reasons that you can sum it all up with. The first, why would he redeem? The first, out of his mercy. He redeems us because of his own mercy, his own loving kindness. The psalmist says in that psalm, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. What a picture that is. His loving kindness is as vast as the universe towards his people. He also says, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. There's a great picture of God dealing with us, not as we deserve, but as a father who has compassion on his children, even when they sin. And the bottom line is, there is nothing that we can do as sinful lost man to redeem ourselves. Sinners cannot save sinners. We can do nothing to redeem ourselves and make ourselves right before God. It all comes from His mercy, His compassion. Now then we went on to answer the next part of this. And it's not only out of His mercy, but unto His glory. Even Jesus said as he was about to go to the cross, that the Son would be glorifying the Father in his death upon the cross. Here we have our Lord Jesus Christ giving his life, the Son of God incarnate, giving his life, dying on the cross. And why did he do so? He did so to redeem you, to redeem me, to pay our sin debt. And that, the Scripture teaches, glorified God. So, out of His mercy and unto His glory. Now, today, let's take up with that next question. Why the incarnation? Why did Jesus have to come out of the ivory palaces into a world of woe? Why did He have to leave glory and come to dwell among men on earth, to become a man, to be subject to the pains and the illnesses and the diseases of men. Not that he was afflicted with those, but that he would be subject to them. Why did Jesus have to come as a child and then ultimately die upon the cross? I want to begin with a point not often raised in churches today. And it may seem like an odd place to begin in dealing with the Incarnation, but stick with me, and I think you'll see the logic. The first answer would be, because of the seriousness of sin. And under this heading, because of the seriousness of sin, I want to consider first the justice of God. The justice of God. God is a God of justice. There are many passages that we could turn to in the scriptures to talk about this, but I'm going to ask you to turn back to Genesis chapter 18 
first. Genesis chapter 18. Some of you know immediately as you turn to this passage that we're dealing with Abram as he's talking to God concerning the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And I don't have a whole lot of time to go into all of the details involved, so I want to pick up simply with verse 25. As Abraham comes to God and starts debating, wait a minute, wait a minute, God! Suppose there's 50 righteous people down there. Just just 50 in all of those cities. If there are 50 righteous people, would you destroy the city for 50 righteous people? And look what he says in verse 25. Far be it from thee to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from thee. Now, here's the point. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Here we have God, Creator God, who knows the hearts of every single man. And Abram realizes that. You know the hearts. What if there's 50 righteous people? You, as the God of heaven and earth, You are a God who deals justly. And you certainly wouldn't destroy the righteous with the wicked. This is an accurate principle regarding our God. Some would even say it is one of His attributes. That He is a God of justice. And He will do Right. Turn over a few chapters or a few pages to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 32. In this commonly called the Song of Moses, he sums this up. He says in verse 1, Give ear, O heavens, and let me speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as the droplets on the fresh grass, and as the showers on the herb. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. What a thing to do. He proclaims the name of the Lord and ascribes greatness to Him. Now look what He says. The rock. His work is perfect. For all His ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice. This is our God. All His ways are just. And He does nothing that is unjust. For a God who is just and does nothing that is unjust, it would be unjust for Him to ignore sin. 
For God to simply ignore the sins of the people and to take the righteous and the wicked and just lump them all into one group, ignore the wickedness of the wicked, ignore the righteousness of the righteous, would not be justice. It would be injustice. Turn to Romans chapter 2, that passage that we read. Romans chapter 2 where Paul is speaking of man's depravity and God's judgment. He says in verse 4, Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads to repentance? But because of your stubbornness, an unrepentant heart. You are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. What does he say? The righteous judgment of God. There is a day coming that is the day of wrath. When those who remain, as Paul says here, unrepentant, will on that day know the wrath of God. This is why when men like Hugo Chavez die, and he was a man who hated God and who hated the things of God and the people of God, when somebody like that dies, we say, now... He knows the truth. And that's what Paul is saying. There is a day coming that is a day of wrath. Whether it comes now for people who died today, or whether it comes when Christ returns on the day of judgment, they are knowing the wrath of God. Immediately, upon waking up in hell or Hades, they know the wrath of God. And there are those that Paul speaks of who know the kindness and the mercy of God. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But the point is, what he says in this text is that all of it is the righteous judgment of God. It's righteous judgment. He is a God of Perfect justice. What he does is always right. And, because as this God is omniscient, he says in verse 6, who will render to every man according to his deeds. He knows you. He knows your heart. He knows your deeds. He knows your standing with Christ. And will render to every man according to his deeds. You will not escape the judgment of God. People ignore it. People deny it. But they will not escape it. Now do you realize that the justice of God is one of the reasons that many theologians say that there is a proof for life after death. 
the justice of God proves life after death. And I see all the looks. What? What? Well, think about it. Because there are many who in this life get away with it. They get away with a lot. And if there is no afterlife at a place that they will pay for their sins, then God is not a God of justice. Because they got away with it. So there has to be life after death and glory for some and punishment for the others. So the justice of God shows us that there is life after death. We can also say regarding why would God do this and why would God do this by sending His Son? Why the Incarnation? First clue. Seriousness of sin and because He is Faithful to Himself as a God of justice. More about that as we go on. Next thing. This brings us to the reality of sin's presence. Yes, God is a God of justice, but why? Turn to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. As we consider the reality of sin's presence. This follows David's adultery with Bathsheba. And what we have from David here in Psalm 51 after Nathan the prophet comes to him and tells him of the wickedness of his sin. What we have is David acknowledging his sin. Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the greatness of thy compassion. Blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. It's his sin. He knows it's his sin. And he's asking God not for justice, but for mercy. Compassion. Out of the greatness of thy compassion, blot out my transgression. And now he acknowledges, he says in verse 3, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. I wonder if we are not raising a generation of churchgoers who know nothing of what David is saying. Sin? Sin? What sin? I'm a good guy. I don't do anything bad. I don't do anything wrong. Their sin is never before them. As David says, my sin is ever before me. Away with this notion that people are basically good. This is what we're seeing. People are not basically good. And that's not to say people don't do good things and don't do nice things. But in the eyes of God, people are sinful, lost, estranged, alienated from God. And so David feels his sin. My sin is ever before me. And look what he says now. Against thee, thee 
Only I have sinned and done what is evil in thy sight. That's the key. People can go around looking good to you. They look fine. They look great. But it's not your sight that is in view. It's God's sight. I have done what is evil in thy sight. In your sight, God, is what David is saying. So he acknowledges his transgressions. He recognizes that his sin was real. People's sin is real. And it's not because of what you do among others or to others. It is against God. That's what really matters. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the sin against God. That's the heinousness of it. My sin is against Thee, O God. What I do is against God and God alone. You notice he doesn't blame Bathsheba. You know, if only Bathsheba wasn't such a, a floozy or so stupid to be out there bathing naked, this would never have happened. It's her fault. You know, remember? That's what Eve did. The, the serpent. That's what Adam did. The woman. Blame the woman. David doesn't do that. He doesn't blame Bathsheba. He acknowledges his sin. He doesn't blame the one who told him about it. Nathan. That's what a lot of people do in church today. They blame the preacher who comes and tells them that they're sinners. Well, we got to get somebody who's nicer. We got to get somebody who's kinder and gentler. We got to get somebody who makes us feel good. They blame the preacher. For telling them that they're sinners. He doesn't blame Nathan for coming and telling him. And he doesn't blame Joab for killing her husband, Uriah. He takes the blame squarely upon himself. Look at verse 5. He even then goes on to speak of what we commonly call the depravity of man from the womb. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. My mother did conceive me. Not the act of conception, but at the moment of conception, the sin of Adam is imputed to man and then they are therefore sinners. Men come forth from the womb as sinners. You don't have to teach a baby to be a sinner, do you? Babies know how to manipulate. Babies know how to get their way. They throw temper tantrums, all kinds of things. Babies come forth from the womb as sinners. And that's why we often say, you are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are a sinner. It is our nature. Paul deals with that in Ephesians chapter 2. Men are born sinners. Now, rush forward to Romans again. This time, Romans chapter 5 as here the Apostle Paul mentions this same thing. Romans chapter 5. He's dealing with the whole matter of Adam being the one who brought sin into the world and then ultimately Christ 
who is the one who pays the sin debt for his people. And he says in verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. He's talking about Adam and the fact that Adam's sin is imputed to all of us. We are all sinners because of the fall of mankind. Let me just stop there and say that you all know that people sin. You don't need a preacher ranting and raving and yelling to tell you that people sin. The best of people sin. This guy that people are bowing down to and kissing his ring in Rome and calling him a humble man and all this other stuff, he is a sinner. All men sin. And our sin is against God. This is the point. The seriousness of sin. First of all, it's everywhere. We all sin. Second of all, it's against God. That's what makes it heinous. That's what makes it serious. I'm sure that guy's a nice guy. Treats people very kindly. And they would think, well, he's, he's never done anything bad. Isn't it amazing when, when people die and get shot in a drug raid, the mother, the family, the relatives? He was a good boy. He was a great kid. He helped everybody. And that's their view. But in the view of God, men sin against God. Sin is the breaking of his law, and men are, men are sinners. So, because of the justice of God, and because of the reality of sin, there is the consequence of sin. For this, turn the page. The consequence of sin. Romans chapter 6. Paul begins to deal with our freedom as we are saved in Christ. Once we are saved in Christ, we are free from the law. Our freedom comes from salvation. And he says then in verse 22, But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. Praise God! Right? In fact, if you look at the next verse, at the very end, he says, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Right? Amen! However, right before that, in verse 23... For the wages of sin is death. That's the consequence. Now once you're saved, you're freed from the consequence of sin. But when you're not saved, you're not free from the consequence of sin. You are enslaved to sin. And the consequence is death. Not immediate death. In every case. But spiritual, eternal death. 
That is the consequence of sin. And because sin has this, what we call, what it, Paul calls here in this text, the wages. The wages meaning it's due, what it demands, the wages of sin. You know, when you work, you expect to get paid. That's the law. When you work, you expect to get paid. You expect wages for your work. Well, it is due to you then because you did the job. So Paul is saying the wages, what is due to you for sin, is death. The wages of sin is death. The consequences of sin is death. This payment, this wage is due. Somebody has to pay it. You can't. I can't. Neither you or I can pay what is due. God demands the penalty. God demands the payment. The payment is death. The punishment for all eternity in hell. God demands it. Someone has to pay the sin debt or we're doomed and we can't pay it. Because we're still we're sinners ourselves. I sin against God. You sin against God. It can't be someone who is a sinner because sinners can't save sinners. Now, here's why I've gone through all of this. Why the incarnation? Because someone has to pay the serious sin debt and it can't be a sinner. God's justice demands it be paid. God's justice demands a sacrifice. God justice, God's justice demands it to be paid in blood. That's next week's sermon. But God's justice demands this payment. Someone has to pay it. And you and I can't pay it. So He sent His Son. He sent His Son to payment. And so here we take up with the next broad heading because of the seriousness of sin and we move on to because of the need to be separated from that sin. The Redeemer had to be separated from sin. He could not be a sinner. Now throughout the Old Testament, God promised that a Redeemer would come. You go all the way back to the fall in Genesis 3 and God promises that a Redeemer would come. But let's look at just two in the Old Testament. Turn to Isaiah chapter 7. I told you we were going back a few months to Christmas. Isaiah chapter 7. We know the prophecy here regarding the Messiah. As Isaiah says in verse 14, Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. And she will call His name Emmanuel, which is God with us. Now look over the page to chapter 9 of Isaiah. First of all, before we turn to chapter 9, In verse 7, it did say he would come from a virgin. Very important. These people who deny the virgin birth are denying Christianity at its core. That's what we're talking about today. 
We are talking about the core of Christianity. That a Redeemer has to deal with the seriousness of sin. Because God is a God of justice. And he can't simply ignore sin. So one has to come. Isaiah says he will come from a virgin. And then in chapter 9, he says that he will be God. A child will be born to us. A son will be given. This is verse 6. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice. Justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord has accomplished this. The God who is coming is a God of perfect justice. And justice cannot ignore sin. Justice cannot lump the sinner and the righteous together. Justice demands payment on the sinner. The wages of sin have to be paid. Now, how could this happen? How could the Redeemer be one who is subject to God's justice? He can't be. That's why he had to be born to a virgin. Now, if you would please turn all the way back in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. The Redeemer had to be the spotless Lamb of God. Had to be God Himself. Free from sin. Free from the imputation of Adam's sin. That is why Jesus, the Son, left glory to be born of a man. Because only He qualified. Only He could possibly be the Redeemer. God Himself left the ivory palaces and came to earth as a man because... Only He qualified as the Redeemer. And He came born of a virgin to ensure that the imputation of Adam's sin was not involved with Him. He was not born of man as we all were. No, He was born rather separated from sin in a supernatural way through the Holy Spirit. Now, this is what is spoken to Mary when the angel Gabriel comes to her here in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin. And we know she was a virgin because she goes, how can this be since I am a virgin? But here's what Gabriel tells her will happen. Coming to her, he said in verse 28 here, Hail, favored one, which can be translated, O woman, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. 
And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. For behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Isn't that what we just read in Isaiah? This is the fulfillment of the promise. God would come. God would come to a virgin. And he goes on to say in verse 33, And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Exactly what was promised through Isaiah. You know, there's people who say this is all made up. How, how could they do that? How can they make this up? This isn't made up. This is fulfillment of the prophecy of God. God promised that He would send a Redeemer through a virgin and that He would be God. And here it is as He comes to Mary, who is a virgin. Now she says, as I mentioned in verse 34, how can this be since I am a virgin? And he tells her. And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for this reason, the holy offspring will be called the Son of God. Not tainted with Adam's sin. The spotless, pure Lamb of God. This is how it had to be. Why the incarnation? Because sin is serious. Because sin is real. And it is against God. And God promised to send one to redeem us from the debt of sin. The wages of sin. And that one to do so could not himself be a sinner. And so we have the incarnation. God leaving glory and coming as a man. But coming through a virgin. So as to be qualified to be the Redeemer. Not tainted with sin. Not a sinner. As David described in Psalm 51 in Sin, my mother conceived me. Not Jesus. Not Jesus. No imputation of Adam's sin to Jesus. He was born supernaturally. Begotten supernaturally by what one called divine generation. That's our Savior. That was the reason that He had to come in this supernatural way so that He would be qualified to be our Redeemer. One more point today. Because of the seriousness of sin, because of the need to be separated from sin, and because of the sovereignty of the Father. The sovereignty, the rule of the Father. You know, even in the Trinity, there is a divine order established. That's a sermon for another day. So just take my word that God the Father is the supreme, even within the Trinity. And so the sovereignty of the Father, even in the Incarnation. For this, I want to first turn to Galatians chapter 4. 
Galatians chapter 4. I want to look specifically at verse 4, speaking of the Incarnation. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. He says that in the fullness of time. What is the fullness of time? The fullness of time is when God, the sovereign God, decreed that the time was right. It was the plan of God. It was the time of God. It is that time fixed by the sovereign God of heaven and earth. It is His plan. It is His time. And then God sent His Son. His only begotten Son. Again, not as a creation as the angels, and not born of man as Adam, but by divine generation, the Redeemer came to earth, born of a virgin, to be a sacrifice. A Redeemer. That's what it says right here. Born of the woman in order that He might redeem those who are under the law. He came as our Redeemer. By the will of the Father, Jesus left glory and came. At the right time, at the exact moment that God had decreed, that God had determined from before the foundation of the world, the Son was sent by the Father. And again, as we will see in the next passage, it was by the love of the Father. And this is where we're going to conclude today in John chapter 3. In this, what is arguably the most popular verse in all of the Scriptures. John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. That's a great passage, right? You even see these guys in the football fields, right? They hold up the big sign that says John 3.16. And they try to get in front of the camera so that everybody will see. It's usually yellow with black lettering just so everybody could see. John 3.16. John 3.16. Why do they do that? You know? Well, they do that with the thought that Anybody who believes in Jesus would have everlasting life. And they want people to know that. And they want people to believe in Jesus and to be saved. To have everlasting life. There's nothing wrong with that. And it's true that all who believe in Jesus will have everlasting life. However, that thought must be coupled with and balanced by what Jesus Himself says three chapters later. Look at chapter 6. So here in John chapter 6, Jesus is telling everyone about salvation. And He says to some, you in verse 36, you have seen Me and yet you do not believe. 
speaking to the unbelievers. And then he says in verse 37, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. Who is going to be those mentioned in John 3.16 who believe on Jesus? All that the Father has given. All that the Father has given Him shall come to me. Every single one. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven. Look, I have come down from heaven. The incarnation. Not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. The Father sent Him to be the propitiation for our sins. And Jesus came willingly to do what the Father sent Him to do. Remember, we're looking at the sovereignty of the Father. And He sends His Son and Jesus says, I have come to do His will. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I lose none or nothing. But I will raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him may have eternal life. And I myself will raise Him up on the last day. So who is it that will come to Him? Verse 44. No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws Him and I will raise them up on the last day. He repeats that in verse 65. No one can come to Me unless it has been granted Him from the Father. Now keep that in mind. Jesus says, I have come to do the will of my Father. That I have come to gather every single one that He has given me. And every single one whom He has given me will not be lost. This is why the Father sent the Son. This is why there was an incarnation. Now, back to John 3.16. Why did God do it? What did we say last week? Out of His mercy. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. So here's what I want to say. We talk about those guys holding up the sign. They want people to know anybody who believes in Christ. you got to believe in Christ. you got to believe in Jesus. And whosoever will believe in Jesus shall be saved. But who will be saved? Who will believe? Those whom the Father draws. As we saw in John 6. Those whom the Father draws. Those whom the Spirit opens up their heart and their life. So my point is this. This passage is not so much dealing with you. You believe. You believe. You believe. That's what people want. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the emphasis on the passage is God. God sent His Son. God sent His Son for you. God sent His Son out of love. God sent His Son out of mercy. And those who He draws will believe and have everlasting life. Every single one that the Father gave the Son will believe and have everlasting life. He will lose nothing. 
He will lose none of them, as he said in John chapter 6. None of them will be lost. Every single one will be saved. But it is all because of the love of the Father in sending the Son. Sending his beloved Son. And that through the Incarnation. Following the Incarnation, he lives a spotless, perfect life. And as we will see next week, goes to the crucifixion. Why the crucifixion? Why did there have to be a crucifixion? That's what we will take up with next Lord's Day. But here again, I certainly believe that the foundational message of John 3.16 is not focused on the fact that you may believe, but rather it is focused on the fact that the Father sent His Son in order that you may believe. It begins with God, and it begins with God's love and mercy. It's all of God. Salvation is all of God. We need to realize that we decrease and He increases. That He is the one who has done it all. It is God who takes the initiative to redeem. It is God who promises a Redeemer. It is God who sends a Redeemer. And it is God who draws the redeemed. It is all, all of God. Praise His holy name. The Incarnation, therefore, was out of God's love to save you. To save you. Why the Incarnation? Thank God. Because He did so in love. It had to be done by one who is qualified. And Jesus is qualified. That's why the Incarnation. Let's pray.